Malachi, or Malachi, as Gene mentioned. The only book written by an Italian. And then there were 400 years of silence, so I don't know what that means, but kind of a last word situation. Malachi, as Valentine's Day approaches, you did realize that Valentine's Day is approaching, right? Sitcoms are going to get quick laughs with plot lines involving husbands getting non-romantic gifts for their wives or forgetting to get them a gift altogether. Thoughtfulness is probably more important than the gift itself. It's certainly more important than the material value of the gift. Your beloved wants to know you put some real thought into it rather than stopping by 7-Eleven on the way home. (laughs) Although they do have some cool stuff there. The setting in the book of Malachi is one of God's people going through the motions without, as we say, any real emotion. There was nothing in their worship to suggest thoughtfulness and real love for the Lord. When God confronted them with it, they complained and they argued with him. They acted like he didn't know what he was talking about. A book like this gives us opportunity to be certain we're showing genuine thoughtfulness towards Jesus in our walk with him. Many Bible experts suggest Malachi wasn't a person's name at all, but a descriptive title for his prophecy. Malachi means my messenger, which was a common title for a prophet. The first translation of the Old Testament into Greek in about 250 B.C. used the term as part of a title for the book, calling the prophecy that followed the word of the Lord to Israel by my messenger, Malachi. The book became known as my messenger for short, Now, the writer may have chosen this title to identify himself only as a prophet without revealing his name, kind of a humble, anonymous guy. It's possible, however, that Malachi was a person's name, but nothing else is known about him. The people of Malachi's day probably lived about 100 years after the Jews returned from their exile in Babylon. About 50,000 exiles had returned to Judah from Babylon. The temple had been rebuilt under the leadership of Zerubbabel, Sacrificial system renewed, and then Ezra had returned in about 458 B.C. After being back in the land for only a century, the ritual of the Jews' religious routine led to hard-heartedness towards God's great love for them and to widespread departure from his law by both people and priest. Instead of offering the best animals for sacrifice, as Jewish law required, the people offered their worst animals, the sick and the crippled. They stopped giving the required 10% tithe to the temple. They were ignoring God's commands to stay faithful in marriage, to tell the truth in court, to help the poor, and treat everyone fairly. The prophecy of Malachi is built around seven complaints the people had toward God. These complaints revealed their doubting, discouraged, sinful heart. And they are these. In what way have you loved us? We're going to go over these, so let me just read them. In what way have you loved us? In what way have we despised your name? In what way have we defiled you? In what way have we wearied you? In what way shall we return? In what have we robbed you? And in what way have we spoken against you? And so among the many ways that you can outline or or follow the book, we're going to follow these complaints. Some people call them questions, but they're essentially complaints after the Lord has spoken to them. And we start... Uh, In Malachi chapter 1, verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord, yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord, yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. 
and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Even though Edom has said we have been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will throw down. They should be called the territory of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. Your eyes shall see and you shall say, the Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. Esau and Jacob were brothers, the twin sons of Isaac and Rebekah. Esau's descendants became a nation, the nation of Edom. Jacob's descendants became a nation, the nation of Israel. Even though Esau and Jacob were brothers, God's dealings with Jacob's descendants compared to Esau's descendants demonstrated his love for Jacob. For one thing, Esau, born first by a few minutes, ought to have had the birthright, but it ended up with Jacob instead. It meant that Jacob and his descendants would be uniquely blessed in history. In the book of Romans, Paul the Apostle lists the blessings uh, that belong to the nation of Israel. He says of them in Romans chapter 9, to Israel pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God and the promises, of whom are the fathers and from whom according to the flesh Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. He says, amen. That's what God had done for Isaac and his descendants, or Jacob, uh, yeah, Jacob's descendants uh, through Isaac. Israel wasn't just blessed more than Edom. Israel was blessed more than any nation on the face of the earth. Now, this wording, Jacob have I loved, but Esau I have hated, it's somewhat troublesome. It's easy to show in scriptures that this concept of hated can mean something like loved less or rejected, but I'm not sure that really is helpful. Uh, it's, it, it all amounts to the same thing. First of all, we need to realize that God is talking here about nations, not individuals. He chose Israel, not Edom, to shower his blessings upon. I think, wasn't it, was it last week uh, at the communion study you were talking about Esau? And, and he, I remember Gino kept pointing out Esau is Edom. Every, every other verse was saying Esau is Edom. And so when we read about Esau and Jacob here, we're reading about Israel as a nation and Edom as a nation. And so God isn't saying, I hated Esau as a person. He's saying, my dealings with the nation of Edom reveal something very different uh, than the love that I showered upon Israel. And remember, too, this is interesting to me, Israel was commanded to show and to share those blessings with all the other nations of the world. Anyone in any nation could be saved and share in those blessings, it's, it's fascinating to me that God told the children of Israel when they entered the promised land, you're going to have to wipe everybody out. I've given them 400 years to repent. They refuse to repent. They all need to die. Judgment has come. And then the very first thing that happens is that Rahab and her family are saved. And there are other significant salvation episodes in the book of Joshua. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, God said to Abraham, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I conclude that God's choosing of Israel did not exclude anyone from salvation. 
Edom as a nation rejected God, so God rejected them, and it showed in their subsequent history. No basis here for thinking God chooses some people for salvation but chooses others for damnation. He chose Israel to bless all the nations, which means to bring the knowledge of salvation to the whole world. Now, the fact that they failed in that mission or didn't care about it or hated Gentiles, that's not uh, revealing of the heart of God. God says, I'm going to choose you. You're the least among all people to shower my blessings upon so that when people see Israel, they'll know there is a God and they'll want to convert to him and know him and love him. And so that's the context of these uh, words. And then we see the subsequent history of Edom. Uh, They never quite got it together. They continued to reject the Lord, hate his people, and so God dealt with them summarily. Um, Jesus Christ is the Savior of all men, especially those who believe. Now, the second and third complaints start in verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where's my honor? And if I am a master, where's my reverence, says the Lord of hosts, to you priests who despise my name. Yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? Well, you offered defiled food on my altar. But say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying the table of the Lord is contemptible. When you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? When you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? Now, the people were bringing and the priests were accepting as offerings things that were contemptible. Some of the things people donate to God are just pathetic. You'd never think of giving them to anyone else. A few years ago, I think when I first uh, taught Malachi here, I asked some of the Calvary pastors to tell me the lamest thing ever donated to their ministry. Uh, without telling me who did it, of course. And uh, here are some of those things. These are, these are quotes from guys on the, uh, that got back to me. During a clothing drive for a mission to Mexico, someone donated one shoe. <laughs> Maybe there's a one-legged man. I don't know. We had someone give us both new and used items from some hotels, some from hot five-star hotels, you know, the little shampoo, conditioner, Sanitary napkin kind of stuff. Some of it had been opened. So they took it home after they used it at the hotel and then they donated it. This one is one of my favorites. A rusted out camper shell that turned out to be stolen. Here's a good one. Used toothbrushes. And then this. When we were doing Operation Christmas Child one year, a guy brought his box three days late There's nothing for us to do with it, so we opened it to see if there was something that would spoil and thought we'd keep it for next year. But when we opened it, seriously looked as though he'd dug the stuff out of a dumpster. We found old, dirty, broken stuff, including a used toothbrush, a half-eaten pack of cheese and crackers. Maybe he got hungry on the way to church. (laughs) Complaint number four, uh, chapter two, verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, in what way have we wearied him? In that you say everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them, or where is the God of justice? The people of God in Malachi's day were depressed and discouraged because it seemed like the wicked prospered and they had it better than the godly. They grumbled that everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. So why serve the Lord anyway since we're not getting anything out of it? 
Now, the truth be told, God was being long-suffering with Israel. He had promised to bless them above all nations, but for their obedience, not just for who they were. The promises God made to Israel were conditional promises. He says, man, if you follow me, you're going to be blessed. You're going to have grapes the size of watermelons. I mean, you know, it's, it's going to be fantastic. No enemy will harm you. One will chase a thousand. Uh, he said, but if you backslide, you're going to have drought and famine and disease and, and eventually, you know, judgment from other nations. This is a harder issue, I think, for us than it was for Israel, because it's pretty easy to explain to Israel, hey, you guys are blowing it. That's why you're not getting blessed. We don't have any direct promises that we will be physically and materially blessed for obedience. We, we sort of feel that way. It's in our nature to think, I deserve to be blessed because I'm serving the Lord. I'm a Christian. I'm not doing anything too bad. Uh, you know, I'm not as bad as the next guy, maybe. And so, you know, I expect God to bless me. Or just when I'm not being blessed, I think, well, what have I done wrong? I mean, admit it. That one of the first things you think when, when you're sick or something befalls you, you think, what, what am I doing wrong? And that's not from the Lord. I mean, there, there are disciplines, obviously. That's a small part of it. But that's from our nature, the, the things we deserve to be treated that way. We're going to be spiritually blessed for obedience, but that's almost impossible to quantify until we stand before the Lord. You, you just don't know uh, all that's going on in your life and in your heart that's a, a blessing to the Lord. And so, as it turns out, God's presence in and every situation must become blessing enough for us. Complaint number five, verse seven of chapter three. Yet from the days of your fathers, you have gone away from my ordinances. You have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you said, in what way shall we return? God is calling them to repentance. They were claiming not to know what to repent of. What do you mean repent? What are you talking about? And you know what? This has become really common today as folks who are living in obvious sin act as though we're all sinners, so what, what's there to repent of? Uh, of course I'm a Christian, but you're living in this situation that is, you know, the Bible says this, you read them the verse, you know, yeah, well, you're a sinner too, we're all sinners, God bless America, I guess, you know, and... And, and you, say, you say to people that they need to repent, and it's like, you know, they have like a, a shield of, or something that just bounces off. It's like uh, they, they look at you like, I don't even know what you're talking about. Repent. Okay, I'm sorry. You know, you, so you're, you're going to quit living together and doing all this other stuff? No, but I, I'm sorry it bothers you. You know, and, and they don't understand. I almost fell off my chair. And... Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. You know what? I'm feeling old. I have to read this to you. I wasn't going to, but I'm going to. It's from a certain lady here in the fellowship, and it just makes me feel old. <laughs> this is the book you were teaching through the first few weeks we came to Calvary Hanford when I was 16. Any, anyway, complaint number six. You have to understand, I've been joking with Pam a couple of pictures yesterday in my chaplain outfit, you know. In one of them, I look just like my dad. And then in another one, I look just like my brother, Tony, my older brother. I'm thinking, what happened to me? 
And then I come to church and I get busted out for teaching Malachi 30 years ago or something like that. I don't know. No, not that long, but complaint number six. Thanks a lot, Ashley. But anyway, (laughs) and then I almost fall off my chair because I'm doddering. That's the definition of doddering. Pastor was doddering tonight. (laughs) Chapter three, verse eight. I'm secured now. Well, the man, (laughs) okay, it's going to get really serious now. See, you'd laugh now, but get ready. Will a man rob God, yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You're cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse. There may be food in my house, and try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be enough room to receive it. The law of Moses had a detailed system of giving based on the tithe, which means 10%. Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 22 through 29 is one passage describing this system. If you fail to pay your tithe, you were assessed a 20% penalty according to the book of Leviticus. I read something today about taxes. If you want to, it it was on, you know, it was a little blurb. It says, if you want to explain taxes to your children, eat 30% of their ice cream before you give it to them. (laughs) This is government. Uh, Since they were withholding their tithes, which was commanded in the scripture, they were robbing God because God said, hey, that first 10% Israelite belongs to me. It's mine. And if you don't pay it, that's robbery. So much so that I'm going to assess a penalty on top of it. Now, people always ask me, is the tithe for today? None of them tithe. Otherwise, they wouldn't be asking me. But people always ask me, is the tithe for today? Am I required to give 10% to God, and is it based on gross or net? That, that's always fun. And that's, that's a sincere question I get. The short answer is that we are not obligated to tithe, but are rather to give according to certain principles that are laid out in the New Testament. You should give to your church. How do I know that? Because in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul said the elders or the pastors who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor And he's talking about wages, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing and the laborer is worthy of his wages. And so it establishes the idea that the church and its workers uh, deserve, if possible, to to be remunerated. They deserve to be paid. And so you're wanting to support your local church. Three of the principles that should govern your giving to your church are that you give regularly that you give sacrificially, and that you give hilariously. That's what Paul says in, uh, to the Corinthians. Those are three of the key principles. He says, hey, you should give to your church regularly, sacrificially, and do it with joy, do it hilariously. And so I'm not going to belabor this or, or belabor this, but think about the money you give to your church. Is it regular? Is it sacrificial? And is it hilarious? Or is it hilarious that you would give money to your church? I don't know. It's, it's one of those. So, and if not, just get with it. So when, you, when people say, hey, and when I say there's a big relief that comes over here, no, you're not obligated to tithe. Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> wow. 
<laughs> you know, I'll write you this check for 10 bucks, you know, or whatever. But you are obligated to give to your church regularly, sacrificially, and with hilarity. Complaint number seven, verse 13. Your words have been harsh against me, says the Lord, yet you say it's useless to serve God. Or you say, what have we spoken against you? You've said it's useless to serve God. What profit is it that we have kept his ordinance and that we have walked as mourners before the Lord of hosts? One of the meanings of the word useless is desolate. In other words, they were saying that serving God left them barren and forsaken and ruined. These are all descriptions of their earthly condition. And it's true that the Jews were not outwardly prospering. They were still in subjection to foreign governments. Their rebuilt temple was nothing to be compared to the previous temple built by Solomon. Their economy was struggling. They thought they should be instead prospering. They used the word profit, meaning plunder or gain. They had the idea that they should be plundering the earth, gaining in material wealth. Now, their argument was based on their having kept God's ordinance and walked as mourners, but that's not entirely true. In fact, it's not really true at all. Uh, they weren't keeping any of God's ordinances. The simple fact is they were putting the priority on the earth, its riches, what it had to offer, the coming of their Lord, the promise of eternity, those things were irrelevant to them. Despite all this complaining, there was a minority who were focusing on eternity. They're described in precious, tender terms back in uh, verses uh, 16 through 18 of chapter 3. It says in verse 316, then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. Those who fear the Lord are believers, obviously. In Malachi's time, they were a small remnant. They must have felt insignificant. They had all the same struggles as the majority. They were in the same condition, and they had an additional struggle with the majority who were not serving God. Like the majority, they had to struggle with their feelings about the wicked who were prospering and things like that. But they also looked upon the majority who were despising God and had to be troubled that God allowed them to go on in their rebellion. They must have felt like Habakkuk who pleaded with God to do something. Just when I think I can handle the fact that the wicked are prospering, it's Christians that start to make my life miserable. You ever had that happen? It's a sore trial. Still, this remnant met together for fellowship, and they exalted the Lord. And the Lord reveals himself here as an eavesdropper. I really love this. God says, I'm eavesdropping on their conversation. He listened intently, and he heard every word they spoke. <clears throat> and he had an angel or a staff of angels busy writing down in a book of remembrance all their comments. I wonder if they had one of those writer things like in courts, you know. <laughs> they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I make them my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. God is saying that he will spare believers from eternal punishment, judging them rather according to their faithful service and rewarding them appropriately. Then is obviously a future time. In Malachi's time, the proud were prospering while those who fear the Lord were floundering. But all of that was earthly and there was the eternal to consider. One day, everyone will see the wisdom of a life dedicated to serving God. We just can't always see that now. I mean, you could look at a guy like Billy Graham and think, okay, yeah, wow. That's what it means to serve God. But actually, that, that brings us down, doesn't it? Then you think, yeah, what have I done compared to Billy Graham? And, and you, you can fall into this kind of thinking that, you know, what's the use of serving God if I'm not the next Billy Graham or something like that? And, and we, we, we lose perspective. 
Serving God is its own reward. God doesn't, I remember Don McClure, one of the things Don McClure said that was profound in my younger days, he, he one time said he wanted to be like Billy Graham until God told him, I don't need two Billy Grahams. I only need one Billy Graham and I need a Don McClure somewhere else. And the assignment is not up to us. Um, and so that's why we just need to enjoy the Lord. Have you ever gotten or given a really lame, thoughtless gift for or from someone you love? It can be comical like it is on TV, but when it involves God who has given you his indescribable gift of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, it's not funny to respond out of ritual or habit or to withhold the very best things for yourself. Each of these complaints is something we could be guilty of, and so it behooves us to go back over them. In the end, let's be the group God is eavesdropping upon. He is anyway. Let's live and give in such a way that there's something to write about in God's book of remembrance. Amen?